Welcome to the Genetics Podcast, where we explore the latest breakthroughs and advancements in the field of personalized medicine. I'm really excited to be joined today by Margot Georgiadis, who's a business executive with a background in economics and an incredible career spanning multiple industries, in particular lately healthcare and biotechnology. We're going to spend some time discussing Margot's career today, and in particular, some of the work she's done recently as uh, the CEO of a flagship pioneering founded biotech company, Monti Health, and also her years as CEO of Ancestry.com. So Margot, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be here. You've had an incredible career, including leadership positions at Google, McKinsey, Mattel, Ancestry, and now recently Monti. I'd love to hear about your first forays into health and biotech. How did you get interested in, I guess this would be the shift from Mattel into Ancestry, and then obviously recently into Monti. How did that come about? How did your interest in this field get sparked? Yeah, Patrick, thanks for asking. I would definitely, uh, someone who's worked across a lot of industries and the golden thread is really a dedication to transforming products and services with data and technology to really find transformational new ways to empower consumers to live better lives. And healthcare for me, it's probably in my blood. My mom was a big um, health transformation agent. And so I grew up sitting at the kitchen table, hearing about it all the time. And it was always an aspiration for me to find my way there. And But we really haven't had the data and compute tools available to make leaps until the last five to 10 years. But I definitely believe this is the decade to make it happen. And Ancestry was one of the most attractive reasons that I wanted to go and run that company, because I could start leaning into that opportunity. You know, we could use that huge audience that we had by the, you know, as I was there, we grew to over 20 million people in our DNA network. And we could create testing capabilities with Quest to create the first direct-to-consumer low-cost NGS testing, sub $100. And, you know, hitting these breakpoints, whether it's in genomics cost or RNA costs, you know, these things become transformational in terms of our access to granular data. That, and then the compute that goes with it, right, becomes transformational. And then at answer to, we also leveraged advances in technology to discover insights across family health history, genomics, and other phenotypic data. So we could really try to get in front of predicting health risks for a bunch of diseases. We even used our engaged audience to do the largest ever live research study during COVID. We had a million people participating in weeks, giving us their holistic information and coupled with their genomics. We could rapidly get to insights. So you could see where technology could go to create transformational benefits in so many different ways. But when we created this understanding of disease risk, there were a lot of times where we could make predictions, but there weren't a lot of therapeutic options, yeah. particularly options that could slow progression or preempt onset. Most of the powerful pathway modulating therapies were only available for late stages of disease. So I started after I left Ancestry and I was working at General Catalyst, spending time with flagship pioneering, really thinking about how could we make leaps in therapeutics development? How could we look at early biomarkers and therapies with the potential for safer early intervention and long-term use? And we started exploring how we could leverage AI to more deeply understand the structural language of chemistry and how it connects to our biology so we could make it more predictable, discover breakthrough therapeutics. And that's really how Monti was born. Our name derives from climbing mountains with AI to pr improve like health outcomes for as many people as possible. 
I was wondering about the name. That was going to be one of my not on the question sheet questions, but that answers <laughs> it. And maybe you can talk about this concept of the anthro molecule. When I read your website, I instantly got it and it makes a ton of sense. And I won't steal your thunder by defining it, but uh, maybe you could define it for us and talk through the AI-driven approach to use anthro molecules to solve this problem. Of course. So in our effort to make a leap in predictable discovery, we challenge ourselves with a really hard question. What if we could deconvolute the biology of every molecule we consume using AI? So we think about it, we have like consumer pharmacy every day. We know that food is medicine. And how would we then use this knowledge to create a new paradigm in therapeutic development? And the concept of anthromolecules came from this challenge, how to create the world's largest understanding of the most privileged chemistry on earth the chemistry that we've ingested for hundreds and thousands of years chronically and co-evolved with us. And then we've mapped these. So we've actually already mapped a hundred thousands of them, um, but there are millions more that we can discover. So I kind of think about it in many ways, it's kind of back to the future. This concept of food as medicine, we just didn't understand it at the molecular or mechanistic level. And there are over 40 chronically dosed medicines today based on these molecules. They are approved by the FDA, like aspirin, statin, progesterone, artemisinin, right? It could go on. And most papers estimate that about 50% of all small molecule medicines are from nature or nature derived. Now, that's a much bigger subset. We believe that anthromolecules are the truly privileged. It gives us plenty of chemical diversity that overlaps with the drug space, but goes far beyond. And what we've done by digitizing that and then building compute tools to connect it to biology, that's where we're able to create transformational leaps um, in therapeutics development. So, you know, it's really exciting to use technology this way, right? Enabling us to build powerful tools to tour this landscape of human co-evolved chemistry, these anthromolecules, and move from serendipity to predictability in discovering small molecule medicines. What what is it going to take to cross that chasm from serendipity to predictability? Like what what do you need to put into the system and where are you at on that journey across that chasm today? Yeah, so it's a it's an amazing problem to solve and it was really tough, right? It's taken this is a few years in the making. Um so the first piece um is our state of the art chemical ML platform and this is something that's really evolved as a technology over the last, you know, few years. So think of our AI platform as a cousin to ChatGPT, which is used large language models to understand all the written understanding in English. What Monty's Connected AI platform does is we learn the language of chemistry. So encoded in every molecule are all the properties that make a drug, bioactivity, solubility, toxicity, et cetera. And our models have systematically learned this language. And it's a really complex task for just one compound. There's over a million different ways, different parts of it can link to function. So understanding this is really only possible with compute tools. And we've trained it on over 70 protein types over five therapeutic areas with tens of millions of data points. So the model is also generalizable. So it's agnostic to biology. And that's what makes it so interesting. And then when we combine that with that aggregated knowledge of human qualified chemistry or molecules, the magic happens, right? Because we create anthrographs for each molecule, all the pharmacological properties we talked about using that chemical ML and also aggregating data from millions of literature and databases. And we have this proprietary scoring system. So then we combine those, we call it Connecta, 
And that enables us to hyper-efficiently tour that landscape of um, answer molecules and create new therapies. And so we really believe this can be transformative in our ability to create potent, safe therapies that can modulate biology um, and we can do it hyper-efficiently. So we're really excited about this and uh, we're now advancing a pipeline as well as continuing to scale our platform. So I think you focused initially on autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. I'm curious about why you chose to go there first and, and also maybe to, to try to pursue an example on this. Do you, do you think that the target for an anthromolecule in autoimmune or inflammatory disease, is it going to be some variant of like a usual suspect? You, you mentioned earlier food is medicine. And we know about a lot of anti-inflammatory foods and we can read about them or watch TikToks and Instagram reels about so-called anti-inflammatory foods all the time. Do you, do you think that you're going to map adjacent molecules in chemical space to some of the ones that we maybe already know about? Or are there corners of the chemical universe that maybe aren't so obvious, but humans do ingest them and, and maybe we don't think about it because they're not blueberries or SIE or something else? Right. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting to me when I first got started into this, right? A bunch of people would say to me, oh, if you discover this, people will just know which foods to eat. And the reality is in most foods, the concentrations, right, of these different molecules are not the same based on how it was grown, how it was prepared, et cetera. So of course we have inferences from diets, but what we don't know is the molecular and mechanistic impact of those molecules. And then how would we actually understand consumption and dosing in a way that it could become therapeutic down a pathway that's dysregulated? So there's a long way to go from just knowing something is inferential in a diet to actually having therapeutic benefit. And that's really what we're doing uh, with our AI platform. So, you know, to your question about autoimmune and inflammatory disease, while there are inferences on diet, we thought about it more at a fundamental and principled level. We started with autoimmune and inflammatory because they're huge populations with unmet needs. The core inflammation pathways are important to many chronic diseases. And those diseases have a consistent pathophysiology in many cases of the disease. So from the mild to the severe stages of disease, you tend to see consistent biomarkers and signals. And this is super attractive to us when you think about the power of an anthromolecule because we know it's safe for chronic consumption. So we can efficiently develop and demonstrate the impact of a therapy in later stages of disease, and then have really great potential for extension to earlier stages of disease. So we can improve health outcomes for as many people as possible. And as I mentioned before, you know, Monta's AI platform is biology agnostic, and this massive diversity in anthromolecule chemistry enables us to be biology agnostic and really work in any therapeutic area. But we wanted to start with one where there was a massive underserved market. We could identify in more and more insights around the pathways that underlie these diseases and really create these pathway modulating therapies that were safe for long-term use and could, where we could leverage intervention as early as possible. So that's really how we ended up there. I think the safe for long-term use is such a critical point here because people who listen to this podcast know that we the discussion comes up pretty regularly about early intervention, especially if you think about genetic diseases that where you may be able to detect a genetic marker when somebody's 25 years old for a disease that isn't going to manifest until they're 70 years old or 60 or 50 or whatever it may be. How do you run a trial 
for prevention in a pre-symptomatic population in a way that the benefits actually outweigh the risks. It's really hard to do with modern medicines because you, we, we don't know, and it may be actually unethical to test a medicine that you don't know is safe in an enormous, not yet sick population. So what I, what I really like about your approach is that you've de-risked it a lot from the safety perspective. Is that kind of pre-symptomatic population that you may be able to treat in the future? Is that one of the key insights into this and where you, where you want to go in the long term? Well, absolutely. That's the holy grail, I think, for all of us in medicine, right? Today, we have a sick care system, not a healthcare system. And with technology, of course, whether it's diagnostics or therapeutics, what we would all love to do is to be able to find the pre-disease population and to have safe things we can provide people that really stem the onset or slow the progression of these diseases. And I do believe that we'll get there over the next 10 to 20 years. I think we'll have to prove it mechanistically, right, in more severe populations. But by understanding that underlying pathophysiology of disease and creating those biomarkers at earlier stages and having this understanding of chronic consumption, you know, this is really why we challenge ourselves to say we have this massive pile of keys lying in nature, right? Think about it as almost like the pharmacopoeia, right? Could we actually systematically interrogate that with technology and find those molecules that truly have therapeutic benefit? And, and that's the problem that we have solved, which is how do you actually pick those out and then understand how they connect to our biological pathways? No one of those things by itself would be very interesting, but when you put them together, that's what enables you to go from serendipity to predictability. My, you used the chat GPT metaphor earlier, and I'm going to latch onto that because it's something that I become captivated by in the last couple of months, like many people. Maybe if we could compare the approach that that group has taken to the one you all do, it'd be interesting to highlight similarities and differences. So my very high level understanding of it is the machine learning model AI has been built and it's ingested a huge amount of text data from the web and from other sources and and that it's developed a kind of reasoning model when you ask it a prompt it can come back with text based on everything it's read but there are humans in the loop especially early on in the training phase to say this is a good answer that's a not so good answer here's a better one and so you get that reinforcement loop what is the what is the data and then training and feedback loop look like for the system that you've built so it's a similar concept, right? You have a set of fundamental training data. So you can take high throughput screening and other data that helps you build this generalizable model. But then you have to do the dry lab, wet lab cycles to confirm that your predictions are actually accurate. And so you that's why you need the combination of the tool, the aggregation of chemistry data, right, and biology data so that you can build these training algorithms just like the digitization of English language. And so this is why we have this unprecedented opportunity because we have this combination of the massive digitization of data combined with more powerful compute tools gives us the ability to reimagine how we unpack problems at a speed and accuracy that has never existed before. But in our case, like any other case, you have to have to find a way to validate. And I think in us, for us, it's, it needs to be, we all focus on validated pathways to start. 
And those pathways have an assay, right? And so we're doing those loops to make sure that our predictions are accurate. And so we systematically measure how accurate are those predictions by creating those loops. And that's why these machines just get smarter and smarter with every interaction. And as you see, I think one of the most interesting things is happening as we think about generations of companies in the AI space is we started off with compute tools, say 10 years ago, where they were kind of just doing simulations. You had a lot of data, there were a lot of options. I can think about some of those early companies that were doing molecular right, optimizations of things. Yeah. Then we went to an era where it was possible to aggregate all this data and, and high throughput screening. And people said, oh my gosh, if I amass all this data, maybe I can get to something that's more precise. I think the new generation of companies that will really accelerate progress because we now have even better tools than we had before are ones like ours, where you actually say, I'm going to take a really hard problem, but then I'm going to put creativity and constraints. Because what enables us to make it predictable is that we understand the language of chemistry, and then we have a privileged set of chemistry that we know something about consumption, dosing, and safety. And by putting the two of those together, we create the ability for accelerating learning and loops. This is similar to what you see now happening with applications like GPT-4, right? It's very hard when people can ask any question yes. <laughs> to that chat box to get it right. That's why so many of the answers become weird or send people down weird tunnels or make strange inferences because we just can't control what's happening. However, what you see is a ton of companies coming in and saying, no, I'm going to be the expert in making people more productive at work. And if I can then get all the training data, I can take that type of model and I can train it much faster in a more restricted space, and then I can get exponential growth. And that's essentially what we're doing is that gen three of companies where you find a creative way to fix the space, you take the fundamentals of the technology, and then you drive these accelerated learning loops. And that's what we're excited about. Ultimately, our technology could apply to anything, but we're training it on a privileged set of data, and then anything becomes possible after that, right? It's not just small molecules, you can do peptides. As we learn more and more types of pathways and how they connect, we can think more and more about personalized cocktails based on someone's exact RNA and what is exactly dysregulated for them. What is the exact right combination? So what we want to do in technology is start from a problem that native is able to learn fast and then scaffold from that and then keep making it bigger and bigger. And that's the magic of technology. It's not the tool, but it's how you think about applying it to a gain accelerating advantage. And so what does this look like for you in, in 10 years, say, if you're able to build this learning feedback loop and then you've got a model or a system that you can, it sounds like you can essentially ask questions about biology, chemistry, and how we can bring those two together to solve Correct. some of the most intractable chronic diseases. What what does that what does that picture look like if it's five years, 10 years? I don't know how far out you uh, you've thought on this. Yeah, we think about this as both a platform as well as a pipeline. So we think about we can ingest and understand the more biological pathways that are validated that have assays, right? the more and more knowledge we can build on that. So our knowledge grows with that. We also grow as we digitize more and more of this anthromolecule chemistry. Eventually, there are multiple ways in which this can be transformative. From a modeling perspective, we can use it to solve really any pathway problem. So what we want to do is make it predictable to discover small molecule medicines for any pathway hyper-efficiently. 
that's kind of round one. Round two is you can do that in combination and create more personalized therapies because people have chronic disease, right? Six and 10 have one, but four and 10 have two or more. And so we, what we really need to be able to do is optimize that. We also know that the underlying disease drivers are not the same for each person. So we can actually understand their specific dysregulation and build a therapy that's optimized to that. So we reduce that non-responder population. So think about it as how can we create small molecule blockbusters that really enable us to solve tough problems and make things more accessible. We can work with partners who actually want to develop more um, things in their different therapeutic areas. So we, we hope to partner with great pharma companies that really want to advance small molecule therapies into their pipeline. We can handle you know, hard-to-drug targets, all sorts of different problems, non-responder populations, et cetera. Then we hope to adventure outside of just small molecules. We can do peptides, et cetera. We can do any type of structure. We're just starting with small molecules because we see this is the workforce of therapeutics. It's more affordable, accessible, right? easier to develop. And then ultimately, we'll, we'll get to these personalized therapies. So we don't really see any limit to this. We also, by doing all this learning, can reimagine safety modeling because the diversity of the anthromolecule space vastly exceeds what we know, right? Already there's 100,000 anthromolecules that we know. There's only 2,700 approved, right, drugs. So wow. our ability to understand what is safe in the human body vastly already exceeds what's already known. And by constantly validating and looking into the more and more of these areas, it will enable us to reimagine how do we think about chemical scaffolds um, and what is tolerable in a human body. And so we hope to just keep driving up this learning process and you know, making new discoveries that can be transformative. I know you, uh, you spent a long time at Google, which is famous for the OKR system for objectives, key results, and driving teams to focus on priorities. One of the challenges I suspect you have is you've got such an amazing platform you could point it in 10 different directions. How do you think about some of the different routes you can pursue and, and how you say, stay focused on that small molecule and building the engine versus pursuing, you could probably pursue 10 programs <laughs> and have a, have a pipeline by now. How do you think about that prioritization and, and help your team to think through it as well? It's, I think it's the most important job we have as a leader, especially in a tech-enabled company. What are you going to do first? And then how do you create those learning loops, break the problem down, look for ways to get the fastest signal and then scaffold right from that as efficiently as possible. So of course, if you started with them, some of those far out problems, that would be really hard to solve and it would be super risky and you need a lot of knowledge to be able to do that. So you really break it down and saying, okay, what are those pieces of knowledge that I can build that enable me to do something now? And then I can add and add and add right over time. And so that's really what we've done. And you have to make those choices. We debate them every day. Also, human biology is complex. There's a lot of things that we don't know. So for example, even though we know we can prioritize anthromolecules that we know meet all the criteria for a first-in-class, best-in-class therapy, and we can model that, we have to get that to a person and prove that. Because as we all know, dose makes the poison. And so in each one of those cases, we have more data than we've ever had before, but we are very humble to know that we have to keep accelerating and pushing ourselves closer and closer to the clinic. And we know we have a lot of data that at the discovery phase and the development phase, 
right? So we can digitize things like understanding what's manufacturable as well as all these other properties that make up a drug, but we have to get that human signal and that data is so much sparser. And so we're looking for what is really creative ways in which we can get as much human data as possible so that our predictions, right, can get as close to human as possible. So right now we're really hyper-efficient at the discovery and early development phases. How do we take that all the way towards the clinic, right, and into the person? And so these are the things that we're obsessed about and make choices on every day. And I think that's what's really exciting about blending, right, technology with biology and being really disciplined in how you put those two things together. And I think that's really where the magic happens. What have you learned being relatively new to being hands-on in biotech and health over the last couple of years? You have a ton of transferable skills from other technology companies. And, and as someone who's spent pretty much my whole career so far in life sciences, I'm very conscious that there are probably a lot of things that we do in this industry that seem very strange to someone who comes in from the outside. And I, and I always, for our team, try to hire people who bring in really diverse perspectives because often somebody comes in and says, hey, you're all doing it this way, but there's actually no reason. And sometimes there is a good reason, but often it's um, the outsider perspective that just shakes things up enough. And obviously you've come up an enormous learning curve. You know, it sounds like a PhD's worth of drug development knowledge that you've picked up seemingly by osmosis over the last couple of years. Uh, but what has that been like transitioning into biotech? And what have you maybe observed that are sacred cows in the industry that don't need to be this way that we could all probably just just change and be the better for it? Well, first of all, I'm so appreciative of the work that has been developed and the decades that people have put into discovering the therapies we have today. You know, this is a unbelievably hard industry because at the end of the day, it's people's lives, right? That we solve for these things. And, you know, safety is paramount, you know, efficacy and the ability to treat as many people as possible, you know, and the processes that you have to go through to get a drug all the way to market are really staggeringly complex. And so I would say that is something that when you get into this industry at the two foot level and really understand that, I think that's really humbling. I think equally, if not more important, is how little we still know about the human body. You know, it's very hard to have ground truth in this field because even though we, we can measure something with an assay today, we can only measure what we know how to measure. And so unlike other areas, right, and I, I think about this back to the early days of, of creating mapping and driverless cars at Google, you know, these were really, really hard problems to get to an intersection. There's a million different things that could happen at that intersection, especially if you're in a crowded city or neighborhood. And it was an exponential complex, but that's why they started doing that mapping in rural areas where you could reduce the noise right. and then increasingly expand, right? The amount of information, the sensors and all those things and how to compute that and predict that. And I think we're still in that era of biology where there's a lot that we don't know. Um, because I used to sit in meetings and flagship is an amazing place, right? They have more biologists and genius in this area than, you know, you could possibly hope to work with. And so I used to sit in meetings and I'd be like, well, we just talked about all these different ways that we could regulate that pathway. And it feels like nobody actually agrees on this. And they'd be like, because we actually don't know what <laughs> I'm like, okay. So that just means we really have to be humble about what we're doing, how we're doing it, how we think about breaking this problem down. And I think 
you can't truly have impact as a technologist if you're not willing to really understand that white space and then collaborate with those people that are best in class. And then together you figure out how to break down the problem. And that's how we really got to this concept of a generation three combination of AI and anthromolecules, because that gives us some ground truth. The anthromolecule space gives us the ground truth that this can right. be in a person, it can be dosed chronically, and it gives me my biggest data set of ground truth, which I would otherwise only have 2,700. That's just not enough. Yeah. And so this is why we think differently. But yet, you know, for a lot of people in the pharma industry, they're like, well, anthromolecules, you know, can they really be potent at nanomolar levels, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas me as a technologist come in and say, but it's ground truth. And by having a large number of ground truths, the vast majority of them are not, but there are a lot that are. And we know that because it's back to the future. That's when drug development started with antifungals, antibiotics, right? It was all serendipitous. Now we can actually tour that landscape as never before, using it as an asset to create ground truth. And so these are the ways that we all come together and think about these problems in ways that can become accelerating. No one of us could do it. So I have to combine best in the world biologists, chemists, right? Com- computational, right? Biologists, chemical ML, right? You name it. We have people from everywhere, as you just said, and that that's that beauty in the blend. That's where the magic happens. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think you made a super important point there about anchoring as many things in ground truth that you can. And and everybody who listens to this podcast know how excited I am about gene therapies and other novel technologies. But one of the big challenges is we don't know if we can deliver them. We don't know if they're safe over long periods of time. And actually, for that reason, the vast majority of precision medicines, in quotes, are small molecules, right? It is the workhorse of the industry. So I think people make this mistake to think gene therapy equals precision medicine. But actually, it's it's just one technology and one approach that I'm super excited about. But the the vast majority, certainly in the next 10 years of genetically targeted and other precision medicines are likely to be in this class of molecules that we just understand in a lot more detail. And so the parallel route, while other people are going after gene therapies, is actually to really understand this small molecule space. And I think the point you made about 2,700 versus 100,000 is an important one. If you're doing drug repurposing, you're starting with a set of two or 3,000 drugs that have been approved and you know are safe. Uh, and, and maybe there's some others that you can pull off the shelf that have been through a phase one clinical trial or something, but you're starting with an enormous list. Uh, and so your job, you don't have to find all 100,000. You've just got to pick off enough to start with to prove that this is going to make a big impact. And then and then you're off to the races, it sounds like. That's exactly what we're doing. You know, there's roughly 100,000 of these known. They've never really been aggregated digitally and annotated and so that they truly could be understood. And then there's millions more we can discover. And there's a lot of places that we can look and we'll eventually scaffold up to, I think, once we get to half a million to a million of them, I think over the next five years or so, that will give us even more ground truth insight. But even with what we have today, we can drive massive efficiency in coming up with um, great therapies. And that's what gives us the confidence. Um, As we said before, in technology, you have to find a way to constrain the problem so that you can learn faster. Each more and more of that learning that we get helps us. And I think that's why our approach is unique. Also, there's a lot of people out there mining the natural product space. The problem is you don't have the endpoint in mind. Whereas I think by starting 
with the most incredibly diverse set of chemistry that has ground truth and building the models that understand bioactivity, we can start closer to the hardest problem. Just how do you engage the biology safely? When you can understand that, then I can see where in that diverse chemical space might there be additional pots of gold. And I can focus on where I want to go seek those out to solve different types of problems. And so that concept of getting enough learning, just like we did in things like mapping and driverless cars, breaking the problem down. But then each one of those learning phases has great productivity drivers independent. But as they stack, right, we had a driver assist systems before we actually got to driverless cars. Or we had great ways to get directions and ways to transform how applications work on a phone, right, on the way to getting those bigger ideas. And I think that is where great matchups between industries happen, where you really create transformational change because you see it in these innings, right? We're just in the first inning, but there are 10, 12, 13, 14 innings to come. I actually want to take this opportunity to zoom out a little bit and talk about AI and machine learning more generally, because you've had, I think, a front row seat to some pretty incredible developments. And it seems like, I think to us uh, who aren't working directly in the field, that a lot has happened overnight, but really there's been decades of of hard work going on in the background behind the breakthroughs like AlphaFold two, two and a half years ago, and um, obviously recently GPT-3 and 4. I'm curious to get your take on where AI is going to have the biggest impact in health and biotech, not just in the drug discovery and development space, but but much more broadly. It is an unbelievable, exciting moment across all sectors with AI, um, but especially in the development of new uh, approaches in life sciences and healthcare. I mean, as you said, it's this combination of remarkable progress in AI those examples you just gave powered by this exponential increase in computing power and data availability. And that in combination with these novel machine learning architectures is really transformational. And this, you know, as in healthcare as it is in so many other areas will be one of the most important, just like cloud or mobile or these other fundamental platform shifts. And healthcare and biotech, in in my view, are a very important beneficiary of this shift because what's really become possible is this ability to take in multimodal data, which is right what we have a lot of in healthcare in. Yeah. and is disconnected. Now, one of our issues is that the quality is not consistent. So one of the biggest things we have to do is be able to aggregate, clean that, connect it, right? And now it's actually possible to do that efficiently and find insights across these areas that were not uh, possible before. Just think about the growth in data, digitization of chemistry, biology, from high throughput screening, clinical data, much more granular omics data, which is only getting better, right? This is the fuel. And so the computational tools are just there to let us uncover patterns in these data sets so that we can make predictions that were impossible for humans to learn. So I'm really excited about the development of new biomarkers and testing protocols how we can, as we talked about in in the case of Monti, discover new therapies more efficiently. We can optimize clinical trial design, right? It's the biggest investment that's really made as we advance these therapies. How do we get to personalize, truly personalized treatments? Not just that we can find the target, but we have to be able to find it and drug it, right? And keep that in an optimal um, and affordable state. And then we have opportunities for transformationally better care delivery models because we can actually 
um, use different ways of remote monitoring or different ways to understand how we can optimize treatment at different for different individuals and their needs, and not just their needs in terms of their health care, but their life, like health in terms of social determinants of health, which we know are enormously important um, with an aging population to how outcomes. So to me, it's we just have to point this at a problem. And as we talked about, we then need to be able to constrain it so we can actually learn quickly because it's not easy to change the practice of medicine, for example. It's not easy to change the practice of therapeutics development. And so if we don't constrain the problem to something and then scaffold from there, I think we have we can have really great ideas that never yeah. see the light of day because we didn't have the ability to you know make it better and better and better. And I think that's why I love analogies like we went from 2D maps that we had to look at on a piece of paper, we then digitized them, we then made them real time because we could understand real time directions, right? We then understood spatial awareness, right? But each one of those improvements was applied to create accelerating advantage to the rest. And I think we need to get there in healthcare. I think we're on the way, but we but we need to focus. Yeah, my team at Sano knows that I'm a big fan of analogies. And I almost think that the self-driving analogy can be applied to almost everything. I think we're we're mm-hmm. we're seeking self-driving and essentially every facet of the economy. If we could have self-driving drug discovery, then everybody's lives would be a lot better. If we could have self-driving clinical trial design, I think right. our lives would be a lot better. One of the questions <laughs> I had on the on the clinical trials in particular is it strikes me as a comparatively data poor compared to many of the other things you could go after. There are not as many clinical trials as there are early stage programs and they're and it's not they're incredibly expensive and difficult to run. So how do you think about building a system like this where you may only have a couple of thousand good examples that you that that exist and maybe only a couple hundred that you could easily get your hands on because these are usually locked away in very difficult to reach places how would you tackle a problem like that if you wanted to build a learning system in in a data poor environment whether it's clinical trials or or something else yeah so i'm not an expert in clinical trial design but if you think about it in the first principles level there's so many parameters and that is always where it gets challenging. And so um, there are a lot of people doing great work to try to tackle this problem um, and have really started to build some of these expert systems that can draw inferences. I think where we are is that, from my understanding of being an investor right in this space, is that we're using technology to make recruiting more efficient, right? We're using technology to make the return of data during trials far more efficient uh, so that we're able to get to insights faster. We're using data to essentially think about how do we do segmentation and think about the populations that we wanna focus in on that are more likely to respond during a trial. So we are doing an amazing job, as I said earlier, of constraining the problem into some of these really important things that become solvable where you can aggregate some data. And then the people that are working on those platforms, similar to you know how we were talking about all the ways in which you can develop more and more knowledge from somewhere like Monti, you can then add those other pieces in, but you have to be able to get into that enterprise layer with a really important piece and then scaffold the learning. And I think 
that clinical trial problem will be solved similarly to how we're talking about constraining and finding ground truth. I think the choice that you make for where you enter that problem will give you different um, abilities to scale from that foundation. And so and I'm very bullish on our ability to do that. But that is one of the challenges in healthcare is that the data is not available, right, broadly. And so that will just slow the development of some of these things. But there will be people that will, you know, have enough amassed that they'll be able to improve these systems systematically over time. I completely agree. I, I wanted to ask more of a company building kind of question. You've seen a few boom and bust cycles. And right now it's a challenging time to be any kind of innovative company, biotech technology company, because interest rates have gone up a lot. This basically devalues things that pay off in the distant future, right? Because if you can invest a million dollars today and get 5%, five and a half percent a year, then why would you invest it when you, you're investing in a platform to develop drugs that might uh, not show up for 10 or 15 years? But I think we both agree that society needs those things, but it makes it harder to build a long-term thinking company. How how are you adapting to this change and how are you thinking about building a long-term company now versus what might have been possible five years ago when things were a little bit different? So I, look, I think we've seen these cycles before in technology, in biotech or health tech. This is not new. Um, and so we all need to look at these current conditions as, as incredibly important, but they're not dispositive. Right, the opportunities with AI are fundamentally transformative, as we've talked about. And so, in my view, as a leader, you have to really make sure that you're focusing on a massive opportunity, right? Which, in our case, we just picked a piece of it is just massive, which is making small molecule discovery predictable across any target and therapeutic area. That is a massive space, and right, you then have to focus on how can you adeptly tackle that opportunity in a way that builds a highly efficient, scalable, and differentiated platform. And then you have to show that there's ways to show progress on the journey. So I think the era is over around, oh, let me have a, you know, hundreds of millions and let me amass a ton of data and then I'm going to figure it out. Yeah. Right. But the good news is the compute tools enable us to do what we talked about, which is create these generation three companies that enable us to creatively constrain the problem so we can enhance our learning and do that more efficiently, demonstrate real value that's being created, and then scaffold from that. And by the way, the best tech companies that exist all did that. So I, I would think about this more recent era as the not normal. Yeah. And we are actually doing what we all need to do as entrepreneurs to build truly generationally transformative companies. And, and that's why we're moving forward with speed. Right. Innovation is always a long game. And I feel really privileged to work with uh, partners like Blackship Pioneering, who actually understand what it really means to make a true leap. But at the same time, the onus is on us as a leader to understand how we break the problem down and responsibly demonstrate constantly that we're learning every day. And it would be a mistake to adjust strategy based on any market signal right? in this environment. This innovation area is a field of courage and conviction. And if your conviction comes from what the market is telling you, that makes you vulnerable. Your conviction has to come from your own belief in the story of the future and your ability to define the problem in the way that's solvable and to prove that you are making meaningful progress to get that done and you're being efficient in your use of capital. 
Yeah, incredible. You um it favors people who really have a vision and a plan right now, right? You can't just go out there with a vague idea and hope for the best anymore. I think it's an exciting time. I think we will see some of the best companies born from this moment. Remember, the biggest transformation in technology was born in 2008 and 2009. Yeah. And I, we've seen this movie before. It just means that you have to have a truly great idea and you have to be incredibly adept at being able to tackle it. To close out, I um, would like to just ask you about one thing you're really excited about that you think people listening to the podcast should be aware of or, or might be interested in. It can be a technology, a person, area of science. It can be it can be something people know about, but you do get bonus points if it's a little off the beaten path and not on <laughs> everyone's radar. So I'll give you a second to think and I'll keep filibustering here, but I'd love to hear one thing you're excited about right now. So one thing I'm actually really excited about as someone who spent their career, I, some people, you know, tease me that I'm like a translator. I'm a super data and technology nerd. But what I really enjoy is understanding systems problems and then figuring out how you transform the way things were done to a completely new S curve. And in that is, I think, the perhaps the most important insight. We spend so much time talking about the technology and we don't spend enough time talking about how we blend the best of the new and the best of today to make these bigger leaps possible because you can't do it without both sides. We both know the long list of technology-only people who try to come into healthcare and fell on their face, right? Because it's so complex. There's so many blind spots that you would have. And so I think we need to really combine those two. And so just think about it, like the tech ways of working, principle-based view of the future, two-week sprints, best data iteration and aggregation, letting machines find unexpected patterns, right? That is fundamentally orthogonal to a hypothesis and expertise-driven linear step-by-step process that's been embedded, right, in life sciences for generations, right? So the magic happens and this is what I spend a lot of my time on is the art and science of how we get high performing teams to create a new future that's joint. We have to create a common language and ways of working, and we have to help everyone get comfortable with the uncomfortable. And it's this blend that leads to speed and acceleration of progress. And the piece I feel like we don't talk enough about, you know, as leaders in this field. I think every amazing biologist wants to be able to connect with technologists to accelerate their progress. And the technologists want to do the same, but they really don't speak the same language. And so we have to find a way and talk about what does that take? How do you do that? And what are some of the things that are really honestly hard? Because I live that every day um, and I've lived it across a whole bunch of categories. And so I think I instinctively, you know, understand it. But I think we all need to be more open and honest about talking about what that what that is that uncomfortableness and how do we get through it to get to the other side? Yeah. How, how do you get people to do that in a, in a company setting? You have an honest conversation about at Monti. We have this shared vision, right? To improve health outcomes for as many people as possible. But we spent a lot of time saying, what is it that we have to be truly great at to enable that across this incredibly complicated set of, of disciplines? And so we created a whole set of cultural norms around how we work. And we tied it back to this concept of climbing mountains with AI, 
we have values around great expedition behavior. Think about it, right? You can't <laughs> leave anybody behind, right? You, you don't know where you're going often, right? You have all sorts of different things that come in your path. And so we've worked out sort of real ways in which we um, handle these two things together. And then there's a lot of development and evolution. And how do you think about this next generation, as we call it, task chain that enables the compute to efficiently interact with the biology? And each side is constantly making the other better, but they do work on different timescales. They do think about data in a different way. And so if you don't force those conversations and iterations, right, you end up not getting to the best of both. And so that's what I think, you know, what we're working through. And I'm really excited, like every month, every quarter. And I do think back to the question you asked me before, the concept of OKRs is really helpful. It's very orthogonal to a scientist, but by forcing people to constantly set goals every quarter to make a significant advancement, and then by having those hard conversations around what you choose and don't choose, right, you force people to actually unearth, right, those issues. And that's how you gain that acceleration. And so I'm really, really amazed and proud uh, to see how far our team has come. And I really know that there's no limit, you know, to how far they can go. Yeah, the uh, the concept of OKRs is such an interesting one. Anyone who's a scientist listening to this who hasn't come across it, you you should Google it. I, when I was a scientist, I never saw an OKR in my life. It had nothing to do with how I operated. When I started to build a business, I very quickly, once our team was beyond three or four people, realized that you need ways to clearly align people because you can do so many things, right? And you need to decide what you what you don't do just as much as what you do. We we use a mountain metaphor as well, where we we call what we do waypoints, where we want to get mm -hmm. to the top of the mountain by the end of the year. And every month or every quarter, we set intermediate checkpoints. Uh, but I really like tying the some of the cultural norms to uh, to to that extended metaphor because you need a diverse team. You you need a medic. You need a <laughs> someone who knows their way up a mountain. You need someone That's who it. can uh, who can keep everybody entertained. Uh, I, I really like that. I know we're running up against time here. Is there anything that you wanted to cover before we we close out? Otherwise, I just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, it's really great to to be here with you and to cover so many important topics. I think we're all so excited about the future of medicine, the future of healthcare, and I think all of us just need to collaborate as much as we possibly can so we can get there as quickly as possible. I agree. And you all are at such an incredible place right now at the eye of the hurricane with the AI changes going on all around us. I, I think I've talked about it a lot over the last three or four years, but it feels like things are really heating up because of people like you have been working hard on it for years. So everybody, thank you so much for listening to the episode. As always, any feedback is really appreciated. The best thing you can do if you like the episode is share it with a friend. And you can also go on your favorite podcast player and leave us a review. It really helps other people find us. So thank you so much and we will see you next time.